This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, everybody. It's me, Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, the same Cindy Adams who harangues you in my column Monday through Thursday, four times a week, every week, in the New York Post. You're about to hear me, and you're stuck with me, so pay attention, because despite international, worldly, global efforts to get rid of me, I'm still there and here. Let me tell you something that aggravates me. You just read about the Astro World concert, the one where Kylie Jenner's boyfriend, Travis Scott, wouldn't stop a concert when eight people were killed. Reportedly in Switzerland, there's a story that this ratty rapper accused a fan of trying to steal his shoe. And then he spit on the guy. And then he told the crowd to F him up. This is not what we call a nice little sweetheart. Now, allegedly, from what I'm told and what lawyers are telling me, is he is having a kerfuffle with a CEO whose name is Jonathan Paterkatsi. Jonathan Paterkatsi is the CEO of a trademarked organization called Down to Earth. Down to Earth serves tea to celebrities, and it began in 2017 selling hats, sweatshirts, tank tops, hoodies, T-shirts to masses. Travis's girlfriend, Kylie, posted their daughter to her 250 million followers wearing a T-shirt that bore Pater Katzi's logo. Was Travis promoting this officially labeled apparel throughout his world tour using down-to-earth's borrowed logo? What happened is they traded lawyers, came a cease-and-desist letter. In answer to that came the beginnings of a countersuit. Patakatsi's position is his down-to-earth logo is trademarked. Travis's attitude is, down to earth is a generic phrase. Therefore, it shouldn't be trademarked. And remember, it's his girlfriend, Kylie Jenner's kinfolk, who registered generic brand marking like Kylie, Kim, Good American, Talentless, etc. Ah, be it known that man cannot live by branding alone. Okay, so now that I have peed on him, and deservedly so, I'd like to go to our election night, our new mayor. Eric Adams had his winner night at the Marriott, where I am told beer was $11. He fast got out of there, and he loped on to Club Zero Bond. Zero Bond is where all the high-class people are now going. It's downtown, and it's late night. He's a regular there, and he was en route to becoming, maybe this is going to become City Hall light because he's there all the time. Right after he won his election, his first hug down at the club was Ja Rule. Not like what you'd figure is one of the people who's going to rule New York. It's hissed that Ja, how, however, might maybe end up in City Hall's office 
of nightlife. All I know is his new honor came into the club late at night. He grabbed cheers, flashbulbs, Sinatra songs. Then he embraced a guy called Food God. That's Jonathan Chiban. And then he started to sing. Then he gave a quickie speech telling big spender attendees who'll be knocking on his door tomorrow to enrich his program for youngsters in NYCHA. There was applause, but it was only a trickle. At the Empire State Steakhouse, it was Curtis Sliwa's dinner. It was crypto gloom. The guest list was dudes in red berets, one with a feather in it, and the big, heavy-duty VIP celebrity name, Andrew Giuliani. Okay? One word that I feel like giving you on Ghislaine Maxwell. That was Jeffrey Epstein's creature. She's in jail now. She's been in jail for a while. Her trial comes up momentarily. Unless Ghislaine actually rats out the gents who play potsy with underage girls. Unless she actually names names. She will not be able to keep her hairdresser appointments for a long, long while. More juice. CNN's Don Lemon, he was Empire at Empire Diner in Chelsea. He was sipping a soda in company of his poodle. He kept barking. The dog, not Don. Don kept yelling, sit. The dog, who possibly only harks to Fox News, wouldn't sit. Carol King, Meryl Streep, and her husband walked the West Village the other day all by themselves. Where they were going, I don't know. I'm lucky I know this. But I want to tell you, de Blasio may officially announce his limp for governor before Thanksgiving. This I know. Let us give this turkey the bird. Let's let him squawk. Let's let him cry foul. Let's let him wing it. We already know what de Blasio is stuffed with. I am now going to go to a station break so this station can make enough money to pay me. And then I'm going to come back and talk to you about Anthony Quinn's widow, Kathy Quinn. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, Kathy Quinn, whom I love and adore, tell me, how did you meet Anthony Quinn? How did you meet in the first place? I don't know if we have enough time for that long story, but I was his personal assistant, and it was uh, a funny meeting because I was introduced to him through uh, his accountant, who was desperate because he said, uh, Tony can't keep a secretary for more than uh, more than a day. And, uh, and so he was uh, desperately looking for someone who spoke Italian because he had a, a whole business of artwork, uh, creating his artwork in Italy at the time. And so my uh, uncle, who knew this gentleman, said, hey, you know, you might want to 
call this guy. And um, I didn't want to, but I wasn't, I wasn't working at the time. I was only 23 years old. And so I said, what have I got to lose? So I called and, and uh, I think a 12 year old girl answered the phone. He was desperately looking for somebody to work for him. So he used the doorman, the doorman's daughter to, to fill in while he was looking for someone. Okay. And um, met him over on his apartment in 86th street and was expecting to, come into uh, a very complex office with, you know, knowing his, his fame and, and history. And uh, instead it was just him. He met me at the elevator. He grabbed me off the elevator and said, come on, kid, let's, let's Okay, Okay. Okay. Talk. Okay. 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 Ah, okay. Ah, okay. Ah. Name some of his <laughs> movies. Name me some of his movies for those of us who may not remember all of them. Like Zorba. Oh, okay. Zorba the Greek, The Shoes of the Fisherman, The Secret of Santa Vittoria, uh, Viva Zapata with Marlon Brando. Uh, Lust for uh, Life. I remember Nav- Lust for Life. Lust for Life, The Guns of Navarone. I mean, he worked with uh, Gary Cooper, Marlon Brando, uh, Fellini, DeMilk, uh, you know, these, for everyone from the 1930s to the 2000s, Spike Lee, Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Candy. Uh, Kevin Costner, Revenge, that was one of his later ones that some people, younger people know. He worked in a a comedy slash uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was uh, called uh, the, well, I forget. forget He lived a a very grand scale. He earned millions. I knew him well, as you know. That's how we became friendly. He was a longtime friend, and he once told me his greatest Christmas memory was when he was a little boy, and his father put 10 cents under his pillow. You know that story? I, I know that he uh, that he was very poor. He grew up very poor. And uh, and that sounds like what his father would have done. And, uh, you know, made him appreciate every cent he ever earned, which he did. He didn't waste money and he enjoyed life tremendously. I don't know anyone. I never met anyone who loved every aspect of life, food, children, nature, people he just ate it all up and you know that because you of course i know where where are his oscars where are they here at my house in rhode island you also have a museum sort of i mean what what is it is it a museum artwork because he had a second career that a lot of people don't even know about and i spend my life uh promoting it to he he was an artist every you know when he was on the movie set there's a lot of distractions and you know this because people are moving uh, sets and he, in order to stay focused, he would sit and draw. Most of the time he was sketching uh, and, and painting or playing chess in order to stay focused. And, and those drawings led later on uh, to him making sculptures. He would carve later on when he was in the desert, working on Lawrence of Arabia, working on Lion of the Desert. He made several movies as an Arab. And, you know, Cindy, you said that a lot of um, young people today don't know who he is. But if you went to uh, the Middle East or the North Arab, uh, North African countries, everybody knows who he is because he played these roles of historical leaders and they still treat him like that. They'll, they'll kiss his hand. I remember we had an Iranian taxi driver once in New York and the, and the man said, please, Mr. Quinn, can I kiss your hand? He said, no, 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 please don't embarrass me. And he said, no, no, you are, 
this and that. And, you know, and they treated him like he was those leaders. And if you go to Greece, they all think they're Anthony Quinn because they all feel like they're Zorba. And if you go to Italy, they say, oh, Anthony Quinn was Italian. He wasn't really. And he was Mexican. (laughs) I have I have as on my walls, as you know, a lot of his paintings and sculptures because he gave them to me and they're signed and I love them dearly. Didn't he once sell an oil, I'm stuttering. Didn't he once sell an oil painting for $300,000? Yes, that was uh, $350,000 and that was at his show in New York in 1987 or 89 at the the Plaza Hotel. And uh, that oil painting was a self-portrait. But he, so every time he, you know, he did sculpture and he did painting, his large painting sold for a lot of money and people still, you know, keep them in their private collections because they don't, they don't come up for uh, for resale very often. So they're valuable. And he was, uh, he was an amazing artist. He loved to paint. I mean, I think if it was up to him, he would have done that all day long. Well, his family, um, made, does, his kids paint, too, or one of them at least does, I know. Yeah, yeah, his uh, son, uh, Lorenzo, is a sculptor, but, um, I mean, my kids are both very talented. My, Ryan is musical. You know, the arts the arts sometimes have a lot of crossovers. You can, you know, dance and sing and, you know, and paint and, and a lot of artists. I'm not an artist, so I have no idea, but when they are talented, they're talented, and it just comes out in different ways, which it did with him. Well, it and, didn't happen um, with me, so that's very interesting. To know. It happens with other you, people. What did you he and me think? both? We can admire them. <laughs> what did he think of contemporaries that he worked with, then, like a like a Pacino or a DiCaprio or something? Uh, he never worked with Di- DiCaprio. He adored Pacino. Um, you know, it's funny because in the days when I mean, he would admire Pacino as a young man. Now he's he's older, but even Kevin Costner. Um, and uh, he, you know, he had this habit when he really admired an actor, he would write them a fan letter, which just was kind of funny because uh, he said, I know he's going to be, you know, he's going to be big. And and uh, and he loved to see that because he didn't see it so often, um, you know, so he, he wasn't jealous of other actors. He was really he was a, a, t- a team player. Well, you know, you know how much I loved him. He went with me. To the Gotti trial, we sat together, we held hands, the two of us sitting at the Gotti trial. Do you remember that? I do. I do. You you, you got him out of, uh, you know, you brought him to a lot of interesting things. And I mean, when he was a friend, I know you're the same way, you're loyal. Yeah. When he was friends with someone, he was friends to the end. And he was very, he was a very loyal uh, person and he knew Gotti and he went with you, you know, uh, to support him. Oh, I remember it that. so well. I remember. And also, he played, you know, he played in the movie Gotti uh, with uh, with Armand Asante. It was an HBO movie, and he played, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, Angelo. Uh, he was an older uh, mobster. I can't remember his name now. I can't remember uh, them either. I can't remember. But anyway, rec- and recently I was in uh, I've been in touch with Armando Sante. He loved Tony like a father. Um and he often did that with uh with the younger actors he worked with. And Kathy, um Kathy, I, how I, I was, how did he memorize? How did he learn lines when it got older and it's it's hard for all of us to remember so many things. How did he do that? 
You know, I don't think he ever, I ever, um, I don't think his pro- his process of, of uh, becoming a character ever changed. He, he immersed himself so deeply into the character that even if it was a tiny role he would play, he would become that person and, and, uh, and learn about that character. Or even if it was some, uh, you know, a fictional character, he would say, what would this guy do if he was in a, you know, getting a divorce or so. So he would absorb himself so deeply in that person and he called it swallowing the pill. So in the, in the moment when he finally was able to become that person and play him on screen, and sometimes it was very difficult for him, um, he just became it. And I think that's why he was so successful in those roles that he played, like Zorba. He became Zorba. He spent four months in Greece wandering around the country with his friend Sam Shaw, who you knew well, yeah. um, you know, just looking for the character, just trying to absorb the character. And um, and he it was tough for him. And that one, he said, I almost didn't get it and I couldn't find it. And, and uh, like uh, Lust for Life with uh, Gauguin. Yes, yes. He, Tell me about that one. I know, I know he did a lot of learning for that one. He did, and he was um, he he was sitting out one day. They were shooting. Vincent Minnelli was the director. Liza Minnelli's father, and uh, and he was sitting there painting out in the field. And he kept stopping, and the the director kept going up to him and saying, "What's going on, Tony?" And he said, "I can't do it. I can't do it." He said, "Why can't you do it?" He said, "He's watching me. He's standing right here." He said, "Who?" He said, Gauguin, he's standing behind me. And he said, so what is he saying? He's telling me I'm holding the brush wrong. He said, so listen to him and change the way you're holding the brush and move on. Let's go. Let's go on the scene. (laughs) And he did that with with Zorba and he did that. It happened to him when he was playing the Pope. He got a, he got a, a disease on his eyes and he couldn't, and and he had to take a, a couple of weeks off the film and he didn't feel like he was, he was uh, good enough or worthy of playing the Pope. And then he went to see a doctor and he said, if not you, who? And if not now, when? So, and Tony said, ah, yeah, you're right. Nobody better than me. So he, so he, <laughs> you know, and the disease went away miraculously over and over again. He became possessed by characters, uh, you know, and I think some of the best ones that he played, that's, that's how he did it. And if he, if he, you know, had trouble with his lines, Sometimes he would improvise in later years. I, you know, he did use giant cue cards under the table on stuck to the wall, people holding them up. But, um, but he never, you know, he was such a professional, Cindy. I've seen people who throw tantrums, who make demands. I want flowers. I want M&Ms. I want white curtains. I want this. I want that. He never did any of that BS. He just showed up ready work. Hey, listen, he Tony hated. was not calm. I mean, I knew Tony. He was not he calm. He wasn't calm, but he was <laughs> professional. You he know, was he a tough play. guy and a smart guy. I mean, he was yeah. not a little pussycat. He had high expectations, you know. <laughs> That's another way of putting it. It's okay for me. So well, I, I loved him. him. I loved him. You should You should have tried traveling with him. So How he did, traveled with... Ten- 10 suitcases, you know, we'd go to foreign countries and, and uh, he'd walk the beaches and he'd find a giant stone. He'd say, hey, you know what? This is really cool. I can make a sculpture out of it. Ship it home. I'm in Brazil and I have to find a way to ship a giant rock home. And, and uh, he, he often did that where he would just, uh, oh, and, and, and we would go out to eat in a restaurant in Barcelona, a Mexican restaurant. And he said, you know, 
my wife can't cook Mexican food. She's a great cook, but she can't cook Mexican food. What, do I, what am I supposed to do? And, and the owner of the restaurant, who was a, an old bullfighter friend of his, said, oh, my daughter Lupe cooks. She'll go home with you. So we take this woman, this 30-year-old woman, back to Rhode Island with us, and she's here for two weeks every single night cooking Mexican food, Mexican food, Mexican food. And he says to me, oh, my God, I can't eat Mexican food again the rest of my life. I'm so sick of it. How do we get rid of her? <laughs> okay. And then okay. We, in yeah. Brazil, he adopted a 12-year-old girl. He wanted to buy a house, adopt a kid, bring people home all the time. And I'm like, we've got two kids. This is not enough. <laughs> we brought a 12-year-old girl home from Brazil. Listen, <laughs> I lived with him. I didn't live with him, but... When he was having heart surgery, this is a story that stayed with me. I was in his hospital room and he said, you mustn't write about it because if you do, they won't insure me for the next movie. So I said, don't worry about it. I love you, Tony. Of course, I won't write about it. But, you know, taxi drivers heard other people in the car who might be visiting others in the hospital. They mentioned it. Nurses mentioned it. And it got out, and the story was written, not by me, by another newspaper. And that's how things get out. You can't keep things quiet the way you used to be. Oh, God, no. I don't know how anybody keeps anything under wraps these days. And and it's true, but that didn't ruin his career. That was... Uh... Uh, you know, 1991, and he worked. He worked for another 10 years after that. I think that was just the fear of that generation. You know, they kept their. You know, you tried to keep dirt out of the paper. Now, uh, it's you know, it's it's. There's no secret. Well, dirt you know is the paper now. Dirt is yeah. the paper, except not the New <laughs> York Post, of course, which is like Social the Catholic media, Digest. You know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> How did a star like Anthony Quinn handle autograph hunters and celebrity seekers? Don't keep telling me he was so wonderful and genteel. He had no patience whatsoever. So how did he do that? Oh, my God. You knew a different Tony than I did, especially with that. Well, autograph seekers, you know what would bother him in Germany? Um, for example, they, he had a huge fan base in Germany and we would leave uh, an event and people would be outside waiting with uh, not one photograph, but 20 photographs. He would sign one and he would hand back the pile of photographs and say, that's enough for you, because these people then would turn around and sell them, yeah, you I know, know. Go, yeah. go and sell the autographed picture. So in that case, he, you know, he would sign one he would uh, and, and hand off. But if somebody... Uh, sincerely came up to him. Uh, let's say we were, he had, he had a way of handling it. Um, so let's say we were out to dinner and somebody came up to the table. He said, look, I'm having dinner with my family. Can, can I, you know, can you come up to me when I leave the restaurant or when I'm, I'm trying to enjoy dinner with my family or, um, but he never traveled with bodyguards. You know that he didn't protect himself like that, where he, you know, shielded from people going near him. Don't talk to me. They would come up to him. They would talk to them. And, and, uh, I mean, he liked hanging out with the people playing chess in the park. Uh, he'd sit down and play, uh, play chess. I, I mean, I obviously have seen his, you know, his angry side. He was extremely jealous and possessive and demanding of my, yeah, I'm, let me ask I, something I, here. Yeah. Big time movie stars can be temperamental, difficult to live with. One told me a very famous name when he put his hand out on the set, somebody just automatically placed a coffee cup in it. They then expected <laughs> the wife at home to do the same. That's why there were so many divorces and separations. What was Tony like to live with? 
simply as a human being? Uh, it was nonstop activity. So he would, I sometimes, I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning just so I could stretch, do exercises, get myself ready. Because once he woke up, it was hit the ground running. Let's have breakfast. <laughs> let's go for a walk. Let's go for a bicycle ride. Let's have lunch. Let's go work. And he wanted me to be with him while he was painting. He said, what are you doing in your office? Come over here. Sit with me. Every single minute of the day, me and the kids as well, even if he was painting, he wanted the kids around him all the time. And so I think that was the hardest thing is that the, the time consuming. And then it was, you know, from wake up to go to bed. That's that's how it was. He would get upset with me if I would go out to the store one day and dare to go to the supermarket. And, and he actually got in the car and, 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 and came to the supermarket to see what I was doing, why I was taking so long. <laughs> and I was okay. like, what is going on? Tell me about the museum. You have a museum today or, or an well, art it's collection. It's not really a museum. It's, his, uh, it's all of his studios, his work, uh, his work. I have a foundation. And so I, I do work with kids, young kids, because I think the story of his life, how he grew up so poor, without a father, how he worked his widow. People, you know, young kids today think you just go from being nothing to being famous and then you're rich and it doesn't work that way. And I talk to these, you know, the, I bring like school kids here and we talk about his life and his process of working because they see I have, uh, you know, half finished pieces everywhere. Things that he, you know, he gathered from all, all over the world and his drawings and his paintings and that you know, his process of working was just um, constant. He worked He worked until just weeks before he died. Uh, and, you know, he never, ever stopped. And I think um, for people to see that, to be an artist, to be famous, you can't, you can't just win an Oscar and then float the rest of your career. And, and I think his work is, you know, the things I have here, the amount of work that he did in his lifetime just blows people away. They say, how is it even possible? Um, you know, so I did a book. I think I showed you, I, I gave you one of those books, didn't I? Yeah. Anthony yeah. Quinn's eye. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, I tried to, what I tried to do was just show the, the, the breadth and depth of his life and career. And, um, okay. Just, Let me ask you something that many, many of us who look at these handsome fabulous guys weren't women throwing themselves at him was he a cheater to a degree i mean you were his third wife i think wasn't he adored by women everywhere he was he never cheated on me i don't know <laughs> well okay <laughs> okay oh, well, lucky for you, you you know otherwise we'll talk later <laughs> no but uh, they did you know but i think um I don't think I never saw him. He was just very, he was so charming all the time. And so I watch interviews sometimes that he did. And I'm like, God, he was handsome when he was, he was uh, 19. He was handsome when he was 50. He was handsome when he was 70. When I met him, I mean, he was, he, he just had a, an aura about him. And uh, yes, he was attracted to people. I, if, if he cheated on me, I don't know about it, but I think that, um, he didn't, and in that old-fashioned way, they never see themselves as cheaters. He just thought, "Oh, what did oh, he she, think he know, was? What did he think he was doing? Rehearsing? <laughs> he was rehearsing? Yeah. Is that it? He Listen, said, sometimes you fall out of love, you know." <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I had enough I of you, Kathy. 
I had enough of you. And I love you dearly. (laughs) And we will speak later about whether or whether or not he was not a cheater, which I don't believe. I he love was. you dearly, and I want you to call me after. <laughs> I will. I will. I will. I want to okay. invite you. I want to invite you to something. I'll so come. I'll come. Again. I'll come. I'll come. Okay. Goodbye, okay. baby. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, seventy-seven WABC. I am now going to talk to Nancy Grace. Now that I have done the station break, and the station can make a few bucks, and now it's my turn. I'm talking to Nancy Grace whom you always hear and see on TV when something or somebody's somehow gone wrong. Nancy Grace is Fox Nation's A1 crime reporter. She's been on the front page with the Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry story. Listen, when did you begin working on this Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry case? When did it start for you? Oh, Cindy, what a case. What a heartbreak. All around the Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry case has been. Well, the moment that I first learned Gabby Petito was missing and under such unusual circumstances, yeah. I jumped on the case and started looking for answers immediately. What does it mean to jump on the case? I mean, if I'm sitting home, I could jump on the case. I don't know where to go and what to do. How do you jump on such a case? Well, for me, I immediately start trying to contact everybody and anybody that I think may be knowledgeable about what happened to Gabby Petito. For instance, I reached her parents, her mother, her father, um, anyone connected to the Brian Laundry case. I called back on connections, the sources that I've long known. I dug up my guide that took me through an alligator-infested swamp about an hour away from the Carlton Reserve to talk about weather Brian Laundry could actually be in the Carlton Reserve, and could he live there? How could he live there? Would he leave a trail? Um, and could he be found? Anything and everything I could do to advance the case. Okay. I'm not sure, since I don't know how this kind of thing begins, If do you suggest a story on your own, or did the TV guys suggest you follow a certain story? How does it come to you that you do these? Well, typically, I find a story. Um, very often, Fox would like me to look at a particular story, and I'm always happy to. Can I tell you, there's never a lack of business. Uh, I'm always, there's always the case. And I want to be clear. I'm saying story, but these are not stories. These are real. With I know. real people I know. and real heartache and real mysteries. That need to be solved, and I don't care if you are on the front page in the New York Post every day or if nobody's ever heard of your name. I want cases resolved, and I don't want to arrest just anybody. I want the right body behind bars. Okay, but uh, ha- uh, Nancy Grace, how do you suddenly show up on the scene? For instance, you, you get these phone numbers. You know how to get a Brian Laundry family how does it start, Nancy? I wouldn't know. I'm a reporter myself. I wouldn't know how to start with something like that. Well, typically, you go to the scene. For instance, on another case, I just got back from South Carolina. Yeah. And, uh, we hit the ground running. And everybody I saw, I questioned about the case, whether I was in a Jimmy John's or the lobby of the Holiday Inn or at the gas station, or the car rental, or the boat marina. 
you talk to people, it's just like putting together a case when I prosecuted in inner city Atlanta. You go there. Don't just sit in your easy chair and imagine what happened. Go find out what happened. And you talk to one. I mean, Cindy, who am I telling this to? You call one person, they give you a name, and they give you a name. And the next thing you know, you're talking about the suspect's uh, next-door neighbor or, or house or housemate or roommate from last year. And you find out what happened. It well, takes a while, but it's worth it. Okay, I know about that. I mean, I've done this all my life. I understand that. But in a case like this, everybody gets nervous or everybody clams up or everybody says, don't say you spoke to me or don't mention my name. I would imagine they would be hiding more than they would be telling. A lot of people do say that. You're right, Cindy. A lot of people want to remain anonymous, and that is absolutely fine with me. I don't need to broadcast their name or my involvement to get the truth. But yes, you're right. A lot of people don't want to be on name as being a source. Okay. But I've dealt with that since I was prosecuting. That's what we call CI, confidential informants. So when you started to search for Brian Laundrie, you, that's when you started the case, when, when it happened with, with her. You started searching for Brian Laundrie right away? Yes, we did, and at that time, we were also looking for Gabby, because at the beginning, of course, no one knew that Gabby had been lying out in the wilderness, decomposing, but when the body cam footage uh, emerged from the Moab, Utah police, right then, I've had a very good idea of what had happened, because I believe Gabby, the better woman, um, she was upset and crying. He was calm and cool. She described how he grabbed her face, her chin, how he locked her out of the van. Uh, it was her van. Yeah. Uh, away from her things, took her cell phone. I worked at the Better Women Center at night, mostly, for nine years as a volunteer in inner city Atlanta. And control is such a, a critical part of gathering of domestic abuse, control, whether it's ripping the phone line out of the home or taking the car keys when you leave so your wife or your partner has no control. That's what I saw there. Oh, I see. So tell us what, tell us what, you, first of all, you went to the, you actually went to this Florida swamp, didn't you? You actually went there. Well, the cultural preserve was closed off, so I went to a nearby swamp with similar, if not identical, conditions. And can I tell you something, Cindy Adams? Yeah. We had not been out in the water for five minutes before we saw, and we counted, I would say 30 to 34 gators. And some big, some small. And, I mean, there's no place to live. I would say it is uninhabitable simply because it's hard to get fresh water. And as I said it, after about two days of the search of Culture Preserve, he's not in there alive. He is not surviving in there alive where he would have left some sort of trace to be found. I mean, Cindy, when uh, drones can't find you, scent dogs can't find you, ATV, no, cadet, a man-to-man search, divers couldn't find him, I, I knew he was either not in there or not in there alive. You mean it might have been alligators? I thought that he was either hiding out somewhere else or that he was in 
preserved dead. Now, how he died, uh, I doubt pretty seriously that he was killed by a gator, but I do believe this. I believe Brian Lawner's remains have been scattered. I believe that he was killed, and then with the swamp waters rising, his remains went up and then down and scattered 20, 30, 40 feet and are now under sediment. It's going to be very difficult to put over 200 bones back together. Well, how did they and, get... Know, yeah, go, go, go ahead. Go, 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 go. Cindy, you know, we're still waiting on the forensic anthropologist to get an absolute positive ID. Now, I know the FBI has said this is him, but I would rather that identification be based on DNA, which can be taken from a tooth, can be taken from a bone, as opposed to, oh, this cavity matches his dental records from 2001. No, I don't want that. I want positive DNA match, and that's what we're waiting on. The remains are now with a forensic anthropologist, and I'm waiting to hear back. Well, how do you even determine DNA if he's in fragments? How do you determine that? Well, this is how I think they're going to do it. We have been, well, we've learned that a skull was found that they believe is Brian Warner. It was completely skeletonized. But they made an identification based on dental records that tells me that there are teeth. It was a partial skull. I don't know what happened to the rest of the skull, but it was enough to make an ID based on the teeth. In the teeth, at this point anyway, even though the body is skeletonized, there is enough DNA in the root of each tooth. You get DNA from the root of the tooth, and you have full-on DNA. I believe they will compare that to DNA extracted from the laundry home, probably mitochondrial DNA, which is DNA taken from, for instance, a hairbrush. You don't need a nucleus to get mitochondrial DNA. That's DNA linking to the mother only. We will get a DNA match, and I pray to God that it is Brian Laundry. You mean there's the possibility it could be some other creature? I think, uh, no, it's absolutely <coughs> human. And I believe also, Cindy, that, I mean, if you look at extrinsic evidence, not just the evidence from the lab, not just the scientific evidence, those bones were found near his notepad, near his dry bag, which takes him to go camping in the water. So what's the likelihood that somebody else's bones were that near Brian Laundrie's artifacts? Pretty low. So I think it is going to be him. Now, what do I think about that? Not happy. Not happy because I wanted to see Brian Laundrie have his day in court. I wanted to see justice of the court. I wanted Gabby's parents to finally learn what really happened, but I think I know what happened. I think Brian Laundrie was angry with her for whatever reason. doesn't really even take a reason that he has exhibited domestic violence in the past and that after the Moab incident, he was angry and she decided to leave him. That is the single most dangerous time for a battered woman. When she finally tries to leave, I think he killed her. We don't know how, right? No, we don't know how. Really have inconclusive ending for Gabby. But we do know that she was strangled. We know that it was asphyxiation. We can't uh, probably 
by hand, manual strangulation, not ligature or mechanical, which typically means some other device, like a rope or pantyhose. It was a man manual strangulation. And what led up to that, we will never know. Well, you, you, you told me on, on the phone when we spoke the other day about a forensic anthropologist. Uh, I, I'm not smart enough to know what is a forensic anthropologist. You know, Cindy Adams is so humble. She's smarter than every forensic anthropologist put together. Uh, they look at human bones. They look at the human artifacts. Forensic means they're looking for evidence. So they will be looking at his bones, Brian Laundrie, what there are of them. And I'm really surprised that there are not excavators out there looking for the rest of his bones. There's no way they put that body back together that quickly. Oh, my. They will look oh at it to determine his COD cause of death. Did he shoot himself? Was he bit by an alligator? Doubtful. Um, there's really not going to be a way for them to get a toxicology report unless they've got some of his hair. That that may help, probably not. What so the only way to do it now is to see if any of the bones have been nicked, uh, crushed. That's the only way to really try and get a cause of death. Okay, but so far, it's still not determined whether this was actually Brian Laundrie. Is that correct? The FBI says it's him, but... I'm going to wait for the DNA result before I finally go along with that identification. What was the site like, and how close were they, the FBI people, allowing you to go? To go? Well, they cut the they cut culture preserve off to the public. Yeah, you had to be part of the search for a relative to get in there. Um, but he or his remains were found not very far away. From where he had parked the family car, the Mustang, it was not far at all. But at the time the search launched, uh, Culture Preserve was about 75 to 80 percent underwater, you know, like you would expect in a swamp. His remains were in that water, and I really believe that's why they did not find them. A lot was made of the fact that Laundry's parents went searching finally. And they had been searching for less than an hour, I've been told, and they suddenly do what no scent dog, no drone, no diver had been able to do. They immediately found possessions belonging to their son. Okay. A lot of people suggested it was set up, a conspiracy theory that they had planted the evidence. That's not true. I discount that totally. If you believe that the parents of Brian Laundry planted his belongings and culture preserve, you'd have to follow that thinking through to its logical conclusion that they then also planted his body, which is ridiculous. No, of so course, no, of course, of course, yeah. of course, yeah. of course. What floats through a body in swampland? Water, suit, in insects? What what floats through a body in the swamp? Well, I think that under other circumstances, had there not been so much water, insects would have been very, very important. That is forensic etymology, because insects are, of course, drawn to a human body, a decaying human body. And based on the age of the insect, believe it or not, very often it can be determined how long the body has been there. 
for how long the body has been decayed. Uh, that, I don't think, is an option here because he was largely underwater. So Mother Nature uh, has affected this investigation far more than we will ever know. We may never get a cause of death, but I do believe we will get a DNA identification. Okay, so what happens now in this un finish it. You're in a car, are you not now? Because I'm hearing some strange sounds. <laughs> yes, Cindy, I absolutely am. Are I just changed lanes. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. You couldn't park for five <laughs> minutes while I'm talking to you about a dead body? Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to park. <laughs> what happens now in this unfinishable case? Well, Cindy, everybody is miserable. That's what happens. And they're going to be heartbroken and miserable for a very long time because Gabby Petito's parents are never going to get all the answers they want. There will be no justice in a court of law. Brian Laundry will never be held accountable. Brian Laundry's parents are devastated at the way everything has unfolded. I'm sure they think that they're in the wrong. Were you never scared in such a situation? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, even when I was out on the boat looking at the alligators, no, oh. I was not scared. I was more curious, curious. Okay, well. But I will tell you something interesting, Cindy Adams, that just happened. What happened? Uh, what? I went, I just got back from Aruba, and it was no pleasure trip. It was no pleasure trip at all. I went to Aruba with... Natalie Holloway, and we have just got back, and we spent several days there retracing Natalie's steps to try and put Humpty Dumpty back together again to figure out what happened to Natalie Holloway. And I've got to tell you something, Cindy. Yeah. It was uh, unlike anything I ever expected. Aruba was unlike anything I expected when I, when I actually saw the places where, ha- where Natalie went missing, when I saw Jordan Vandersloot's home, who I say murdered Natalie Holloway. It, it, just, it just left me with such a feeling of injustice. I just can't tell you because I know you remember because we talked about it at the yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that I said, if this guy walks, he's going to kill somebody again. And they let him walk, of course. And he did, five years, I think, to the day, murder another young girl he met on vacation, Stephanie Tassiana Flores. And if he had been stopped in Aruba, Stephanie would be alive today. Well, I'll tell you the truth, Nancy Grace. I'll tell you something. You are very boring to talk to. You never have anything to say, and I'm tired of listening to you and hang up. You're really annoying, and thank you. And I, lo- I love you to death. I'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Oh, Sandy, it's so great to hear your voice. I love you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, you too. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. So let me tell you about A Christmas Carol. It's our famous story about the holidays. There was a father who was reading aloud a Christmas carol to his kid. The kid was so thrilled, she walked away before he finished, even before that first ghost appeared. So the father, his name is Jesse Cornbluth, 
He shrunk descriptions of the 1843 London. He simplified all the dialogue. He axed extraneous characters, and he shriveled its 28,000 words to 13,000. Listen, so did Dickens, performing it 127 times. Charlie himself used a skinny version. So now, Jesse Cornbluth's abridged Christmas Carol got published this week in time for the holidays. Soon, everything about our lives is going to be dwarfed. The 12 birds of Christmas will soon shrink to eight. It'll be Snow White and the five and a half dwarfs, a partridge in a pear bush. Only one wise man. And the kids will sing, All I want for Christmas is my one front teeth. Which, for no reason whatsoever, brings me to Palm Beach. Long-time Palm Beachers are starting to curse. Most of them are elderly. Their dentures are spouting about sons of beaches. Their paradise is starting to get New York restaurant logged. They don't like it. Our closed eateries have moved south. The old-time, old-school, old-genteel, gentile, old bleachers do not like it. They do not like us northerners. They do not like us who are elderly. Not. Mr. Chow, the restaurant, moved in. Also Café Boulud. Also La Goulou. Swifties is now at the Colony Hotel. Bill Bouquet set up shop. St. Andrews, St. Ambrose is creeping in to where Schraff's once was when Palm Beach was Palm Beach. So what could be up next? Ah, who knows? Maybe New York sidewalk hot dog carts hustling bagels for bathers. Okay, I got some more things I want to drop to you. I just, I'm just in the mood to burble. There's a new film that's coming out called Julia. Martha Stewart and Danielle Boulud co-hosted a reception for it. It's the story of chef Julia Child from a chance local Boston TV shot where she was nobody, and suddenly it bolted her to fame at the age of 50. It's archival footage, personal photos, first-person narratives, comments from Jew, Ruth Rachel, Ina Garten, Alex Prudhomme, plus her 12-year struggle to publish Mastering the Art of French Cooking. This book sold 2.5 million copies. None to my housekeeper. And another food story. There is a restaurant has been for many years called Brasserie Les Halles. That's where Anthony Bourdain, who is no longer with us, where he got his start. His partner, the guy who owned it, was Roman Catholic Jose Morel. He served kosher 
to Jewish customers when they wanted that kind of meat. Then it was so successful, he then opened a kosher steakhouse called Le Marais, and Bourdain growled, No pork? No gruyere for French onion soup? No jambon beurre? But he downed the steak kosher. Friends always, in parts unknown, the two of them visited Portugal's Calarico de Basto. That was Morel's home. And that's where pig slaughtering is traditional. The two guys stuffed the pig bladder and played soccer with it. While I'm on this for no reason at all, another kosher book. The new book is called Kosher Eight. H-A-T-E, by Rabbi Shmuley Botich. He was spiritual advisor to Michael Jackson. He challenges the phrase, love thine enemy, and solution to the world's injustice is hate. He says it's not the malignant form of hate. It's the construction form that's killing us. It's hating evil doers. He says there will never be peace until we neutralize those who disturb the peace. He's talking those who are killing New Yorkers. He's talking social cohesion will never be realized until those who seek to tear us apart are stopped. So those are a couple of things you can look at when you're not just listening to me or reading me, or maybe praising me. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 